Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss Russia's nuclear strike simulations overseen by President Putin, look at how the Russian state is tightening the screw on dissenters, and our China correspondent, Sophia Yan, gives her take on Xi Jinping's approach to the conflict after months of looking into his life story. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Ukraine can win, Ukraine must win, and Ukraine will win. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 27th of October, day 246. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, our Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva, and our China correspondent, Sophia Yan. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. Thanks, David, and good afternoon, everyone. Yes, I think it's only right that we do start on the front lines. Fighting remains very, very intense in the eastern Donbass region, particularly near Bakhmut, which, of course, last week we heard Roland reporting from and in in a lot of detail. So I'd recommend that people listen to those if you want to hear more significance about the strategic importance of that place. But more broadly, uh, President Zelensky has remarked on the craziness of the Russian tactics and their repeated attacks in the eastern Donbass. He says that the infighting there is very intense. And I'll quote in full what he said. This is where the craziness of the Russian command is most evident. Day after day, for months, they are driving people to their deaths there, concentrating the highest level of artillery strikes. So as I get again, I think that just speaks to the intensity of what is going on. And indeed, I saw a, a statistic yesterday, which isn't necessarily accurate. Of course, it's very difficult in war to know exactly how accurate statistics are. But saying that yesterday alone, there may have been just under 500 Russian soldiers killed. So even if things may seem to have have slowed in many ways when we're comparing it to the counteroffensive many months ago, actually you hear that figure and you realise that this really is still a very, very intense war indeed. Francis, can you tell me a little bit more about this nuclear test story from last night? Obviously this happened after we were live yesterday, but I think it's important to draw attention to it for for listeners who haven't seen the, the news in the last 24 hours or so, that yes, there are some significant nuclear exercises carried out by Putin. Uh, it's 
important to emphasise that these were pre-scheduled. This isn't anything particularly unusual. Of course, we've talked at length already about the sabre-rattling rhetoric that Russia has been coming out with for months now. But nonetheless, I think it is important that despite all of the condemnations from the West, this exercise did still go ahead and in quite a considerable manner. General Secretary of the Defence, General Shoigu, said that it showed Russia delivering a massive nuclear strike by strategic offensive forces in response to an enemy nuclear strike. Uh, He said that nuclear capable missiles were fired from land, sea and strategic bombers. Now, obviously nuclear capable, they didn't actually fire these weapons, um, but was meant to be a show that they could in theory. We saw footage as well of of Putin sitting and watching these exercises via video link, obviously intended not only for a domestic audience to show strength, but also an international audience to show that, in theory at least, he's he's serious when he's talking about uh, nuclear escalation. Natalia, do you want to come in on that? You you wrote the story for The Telegraph. Um, what did you make of the footage we saw of Putin and, and what Russia was, uh, was conducting yesterday? The Biden administration yesterday... Um made it clear that this was a planned exercise. They had been um, warned, they had been um, uh, told about it in advance, as Russia does in compliance with its um, uh, arms control obligations. And still, this this was quite a stark warning, since um, exactly a week before Russia launched in its invasion, um, uh, it conducted similar exercises. There was nothing um, extraordinary about it. The same number of launches from the air, from the ground, from a submarine. Still, obviously, that, that comes at a time when Russia has been warning and um, uh, bringing uh, about the issue of nuclear weapons now and again in a manner that we hadn't seen before. But, but the timing is obviously of um, causes great concern. Francis, I know that there's quite a lot going on uh, outside of Ukraine as well with some uh, updates on international diplomacy. Can you talk us through them? Sure. Well, I think it's just important to draw attention to what may sound like a small story, but I think it's indicative of a broader trend. And that's something that's going to be very relevant in the months and years after the war. So the US and Western allies on the UN Security Council have insisted that the UN chief has the right to investigate if Russia has used Iranian drones to attack civilians and power plants in Ukraine. Now, of course, we already know from our own investigations that that, that they are using Iranian drones. I don't think many people would deny that fact. But the very fact that that Western allies are trying to push the UN to investigate this shows the seriousness of what they think has happened. And I just want to tie that in with the remarks of the French uh, Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne, who said that Russia will have to answer for its, quote, barbaric violations of the war, of the laws of war, close quote, saying that Uh, Wherever Ukraine's troops uh, take back territory from the invading Russian forces, they discover massacres or mass graves, as in Butcher in the spring and more recently in Izium. So she goes on to condemn the the violence conducted by Russia, saying that these are shocking, revolting, monstrous acts. They're barbaric violations of the laws of war and Russia will have to answer for them. So, again, I just... Bringing those two stories together, we can see here that the international community is determined that Russia is not allowed to get away with these these atrocities, clearly not only because they want to see certain people brought to justice, but also because of the message this sends to the 
wider world that if you allow these kind of acts to be carried out with impunity, the fear is is that it, you are mandating them, we're allowing them to be carried out, and and that sends a very very bad message indeed. So two two insignificant, if what may seem like background stories, but two significant ones nonetheless, I think. Francis, you've also been looking at an interesting story from Australia. Can you talk us through it? Yeah, so I'm just aware we have a lot of Australian listeners and we got a lot of messages from them saying what more can Australia be doing, but also interested in in reporting to us what the Australian political scene is saying about Ukraine. And there is a small story that Australia has announced that it will deploy 70 soldiers to Britain to help train Ukrainian troops. Now, we've talked at length already on the podcast about how Britain has been training these forces to be deployed on the front line to use all sorts of high tech weapons. And whilst, of course, 70 soldiers is, is relatively small in the grand scheme of things, I think this story has symbolic significance of an example of which the international community is is rallying around in a way that we haven't seen for a long time. Of course, this comes in the context of, of a broader defence pact of which Britain and America are part of with um, uh, countries on the other side of the world. Um, but uh, as I say, I think that th- this is a story that just uh, speaks to a broader trend of the world realising the significance of Ukraine for broader trends and wanting to be involved accordingly. There's one more thing I think, Francis, I'd quite like your thoughts on before we move to Natalia and some of the reporting she's been doing in the last few days. Um, The former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, um, there's a story going around about him in today's Telegraph. Um, Tell us about what, as we know, he recently lost, um, he didn't enter even, he didn't enter the race to become Britain's next Prime Minister to make quite an extraordinary comeback. Um, It sounds as if we have an idea of what he'll be up to next, and it does regard Ukraine. Uh, Francis, can you talk us through it? Yes, well, this is an exclusive story for us um, that the former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is considering setting up a new organisation to help support Ukraine and rebuild the war-torn country as he seeks to build a new career on the international stage. Now, we understand he's already set up an office in Westminster from which he hopes to start this new foundation, which uh, his contacts, his friends have, have told us that could raise millions to to uh, contribute to this so-called Marshall Plan for Ukraine. And as I say, we don't know necessarily whether this is Boris's only ambition. Um, but nonetheless, it's it's significant, I think, that he sees his next big role as being something relating to Ukraine, which will no doubt be be a relief to many people in Ukraine. Obviously, we've spoken in the past about his his pop- popularity there, uh, contrasting quite steeply with, I think it's fair to say, his popularity here in, here in Britain. Well, thank you very much for that, Francis. Um, Let's talk to Natalia Vasilyeva for a bit now before we bring in Sophia. Uh, So thank you very much, Sophia, for waiting. Um, Natalia, you've written a number of very interesting stories I want to talk about. Um, Who is Ksenia Sobchak? Why is she important? And what might uh, her fleeing the country um, tell us about Russian society and and the Russian government right now? Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, This is quite an extraordinary story, um, not in the sense of in the sense that of what actually happened, but um, in a sense of who it happened to do. As we know, um, hundreds of thousands of Russians have uh, been fleeing war 
in the past couple of months, first they were um, they f- they they um, fled Russia in the aftermath of the invasion. Then we saw hundreds of thousands Russian men fleeing mobilization. So uh, yesterday we saw quite extraordinary footage of Ksenia Sapchak, one of Russia's best known socialites, who has reinvented herself as a journalist. Uh, we saw the footage of her crossing the border from Belarus to Lithuania on foot. And the reason why she did it was she was fleeing criminal uh, prosecution in Russia. I think it's important to say a few words about her. Uh, she's not just a socialite uh, or a journalist. She uh, has often been, been described as a Russian royalty. She's the daughter, the only child of Anatoly Sobchak, um, the first post-Soviet mayor of St. Petersburg, a long-time um, mentor of Vladimir Putin, and... Uh, possibly the grand, the, the goddaughter of Vladimir Putin. This is a persistent rumor that she has denied. So she's, um, she's a close personal friend of Putin. And uh, Putin was at her father's funeral. He has spoken multiple times fondly about Anatoly Sapchak being this sort of father figure, the, um, a mentor to him who was with him throughout uh, Putin's years in law school where Sapchak taught law and then in uh, St. Petersburg City Hall. Sapchak has had quite a special role in the Russian media landscape. First, she was known as an it girl who socialized and partied her life away in the um, 2000 when she was in her 20s, 30s. Um, in the recent decades, she has reinvented herself as a journalist. She famously joined the first wave of anti-Putin protest in 2011-2012. In 2018, she ran for president, and this uh, presidential bid was speculated to have been approved by the Kremlin, in fact, sanctions by the Kremlin, because around that time, Alexei Navalny, Russia's most popular opposition leader, um, was actually going to run for president and he would have had a strong chance if he hadn't been barred from running. So Sapchak has always um, managed to strike this very careful balance between being critical of the Kremlin and of Vladimir Putin personally, despite their close personal ties. But all the while, she has been allowed this very special role in Russian mil- mil- media landscape. For example, she would be invited to Putin's annual press conferences, where, which are tightly choreographed. So obviously, this is a big, big show on TV, uh, carried live. And um, she would have a chance to ask Putin a very critical question, but with the understanding that that question had been pre-approved. So what happened yesterday, Sapchak's team, um, one of um, her closest um, Team members, uh, her commercial director, uh, was slapped with extortion charges. And uh, last night he ended up getting arrested for, for two months on suspicion of extortion. And uh, Sobchak was rumored to be facing charges too. So we just heard late last night that she had to um, flee Russia, which again, in itself... Um, dissidents fleeing Russia is not news anymore. It happens pretty much every day. But the fact that someone who was so close to Putin, who was allowed to say whatever she wanted pretty much, the fact that she fled, fearing that she could be arrested, that's um, that's quite a signal that uh, the Kremlin's tolerance for any anti-war views or any dissent um, is running very low. Even though she was very ambivalent about the war, she made sure not to say openly that she was against it because of war censorship, but 
she was critical enough and and the um and stories that she carried on her social media channel they were quite telling in what and what she, what in what she really thought about it well thank you very much for that natalia you mentioned uh, you spoke a little bit about mobilization Can, you've written another fascinating story to do with child maintenance and how russian military recruiters are targeting fathers who are, who are not paying it um talk to us about this how did you find this and what's happening yeah this is actually a persistent rumor rumor i've heard um uh in the past month since uh vladimir putin announced mobilization and um we're beginning to get the first confirmation that it's the confirmations that it's actually happening. Um, now, Margarita Simonyan, the um, uh, well-known and influential head of the RT television network, um, recorded a video over the weekend uh, in which she spoke about her recent visit to Sochi, her hometown in the south of Russia. And uh, she spoke about um, having a conversation with the local mayor who um, basically confirmed to her that they had drawn up a list of men who have been failing to pay child support for their children, and those men have been sent off to fight. I have heard an official reports of women whose ex-husbands or ex-boyfriends have been uh, have essentially abandoned their children, and those women have apparently uh, snitched onto their husbands to the military recruitment offices, and apparently someone did end up on the front line. Um, those reports are quite um, hard to um, track, but it sounds like it really is happening. That's extraordinary. Thank you. So I mean, from what you've said about Ksenia Sobchak and the story you've just told us, it sort of sounds like the, the message from the Kremlin is no one's safe and they're finding ever more spurious, you might say, reasons for, for calling people up to the front line. Is, is that a sense that you get from, from talking to people in Russia? Yes, absolutely. And uh, the case of Sobchak is extraordinary also because she was not as openly critical as you would think her production team did a story about the mobilization showing how chaotic it was how under equipped men were um so obviously exposing the things that have actually been publicized by state television um but again the fact that she she's in trouble now shows that there's very little um room for dissent especially as um Russia is still struggling to get as many men as it needs for the front. And we're also hearing mixed reports about whether the mobilization is actually going ahead or not. For example, in Moscow, uh, Mayor Sabianin um, last week um, said that the mobilization drive is over, that no one is going to be conscripted anymore, that they have filled in the, they have filled the quota um, um, of the defense ministry, but there are still I'm still hearing unconfirmed reports that um, people do get conscripted d- d- despite of that. And just one final story, Natalia. Thank you, thank you for all of that. Is this extraordinary investigation from Bellingcat, uh, Christo Grozev, who spent six months looking through employment data on Russia's black market and believes they found the, the sort of the military unit of engineers who are who are firing the, the actual missiles aimed at Ukrainian cities? Can you tell us about this? The way they did it, uh, they went and checked the all all lists of graduates from Russia's top military schools who would be specializing in um, computer science, computer programming, exactly the same specialization which would allow them to work in, to work those jobs, you know, programming paths for cruise missiles, for example. So they, uh, they correlated the list, uh, the lists um, with phone data, 
with flight manifest, something that, astonishingly enough, is still available on, on, the, on the black market in Russia. So they were able to identify about 30 members of this high, highly secretive team. And what's even more astonishing, they ran a family picture of the team, and the family picture was, in fact, supplied, as Bellingcat says, uh, by one of the team members who had been uh, approached by them. Um, now, one member of the team spoke to Bellingcat on the record. Uh, most of them insisted they, um, it, you know, they, it was their identities, but they had nothing to do with the military. And apparently one person uh, sent them um, uh, some sensitive information, basically confirming that it was them, including the family uh, picture of about 30 people standing on the porch of a building of a Russian defense ministry compound, all um, looking very young. There's nothing special about them. You're, they obviously don't look like a depth squad in, in that sense. Uh, they're all very young. The four youngest of them are just 24. A lot of them have backgrounds in uh, IT, in the gaming industry. Um, some of them have held civilian jobs working on the IT desks and in, in, in banks and um, um, other companies. They were also, Bellingcat was also able to uh, track uh, even their hobbies and was able to find out, for example, that the commander of that unit was trading antique coins on this website on the day his team was about to launch a missile strike on Kiev. So that's obviously quite extraordinary, but, but shows how, how, how much of a routine that job is for people who are actually executing the orders from, from the top, the orders from Vladimir Putin. Well, thank you, Natalia, for talking us through all of that. It's, it's a great pleasure to have Sophia Yan back with us. Sophia Yan is the Telegraph's China correspondent. Uh, Sophia, there's, there's, I, I imagine, quite a lot to talk about. But, I mean, first of all, you have been wor- doing working very hard on an extraordinary piece of work which is now published um a podcast on xi jinping chinese president from all the interviews from all the work that you've done looking into xi trying to understand what motivates him what what he thinks about the world how do you think he and his team think about the war in ukraine well, the biggest takeaway on xi when it comes to foreign policy and how he wants to position china on the world stage is that he's totally shed this old idea of hide your time, uh, sorry, hide your might, bide your time. This was something that was introduced in the 1980s under a previous Chinese leader, Deng Xiaoping. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Hang out, do your thing. Don't be too aggressive. Don't show all your cards right away. But under Xi, that's totally changed. It's been very clear from everything he's done, everything he's said, that he really thinks this is China's time to shine. Nothing's going to get in his way. And he does give this sense to the world that he sees states like China and Russia on the rise, that regimes like his, regimes like his and Putin's, are the ones that are now at odds with the West. He really thinks the West is in decline. And so you've seen this over the last 10 years that Xi Jinping has been in power. He has cozied up to Putin. He has this relationship with Putin. They are friends as far as you can be friends when you're two strongman dictators. Um, But you do see this relationship building. And so in that sense, on a values front, she has to continue to side with Putin. Even though China hasn't said that outright, if you just look at how they've acted, the fact that they haven't 
denounced Putin publicly for his invasion. Uh, Chinese state media also touting the same lines that you see in Russian state media, all this disinformation about what's actually happening. You know, this is very clear that China wants to continue to be on side more or less with Russia. Um, but it's becoming a political hot potato because this invasion was so unprecedented. China, it's, it's not doing any favors for China on the world stage. It doesn't look good for Xi. And it really just hammers home this concern that a lot of countries have, which is this big question of what it means if China continues to rise in prominence. Are we going to get something similar? Are we going to get fiscal conflict over Taiwan? I mean, these are questions that have been on the table for a long time, but they've never really seemed so much of a reality than they have now. They've always been much more hypothetical. And at this point, it could happen. It may not happen tomorrow. It's probably not going to happen tomorrow, as everyone hopes in the world. Um, but it could happen in the next couple of years. It could happen in 10 years or 15 years. I mean, this is no longer something that is talked about in very lofty terms. And so I do think we've entered a pretty dangerous period. When China looks at the war, at the invasion of Ukraine, and sees what is happening to the Russian military, it then looks east and looks to Taiwan. What kind of lessons do you think the Chinese leadership are taking? And is one of those lessons potentially that uh, you cannot let the West arm uh, states that you, you, you know, at some point you might wish to invade? Because if they do, they might be successful and hold you back. There's like two things that she's probably thinking about that she and his advisors are considering. One is how to insulate itself from the blowback that could come. So this has been actually very instructive for China to review their playbook to, by, by looking at how the West responded to Russia. So now China can take that and have some sense of what might happen if they were to move on Taiwan. So they can make some preparations in that front. And then the second question is, would the Chinese military be able to do it? The Chinese military on paper, in terms of just pure firepower, if you're looking at the numbers, if you're looking at what they've got, they have the biggest armed forces in the world. We're talking 2 million troops. Uh, they've got a lot of bells and whistles, a lot of firepower. But can they actually make use of all those toys? We don't know. Xi Jinping perhaps doesn't even know himself because the Chinese military is not very much tested in combat. They don't have that much experience. So even though they've got a lot of the things that they would need, would would we see a situation like Ukraine? Would we see something where they're really embarrassed when they go, oh, you know, guns blazing, going into Taiwan? Um, that's entirely possible. And that would be something that would be so embarrassing for China. You know, China has now staked its claim over Taiwan in the sense that it's become so much of the daily vernacular of things that Xi Jinping will talk about. You know, he he looks at Taiwan, it goes into what he terms the need for national rejuvenation. And one of those one of those is really to bring Taiwan back into the fold of the Chinese motherland. If he pledges to do this and he fails this really does not look good for him. You've been looking at Xi's rise, his personality for, for months now, um, Sophia, and obviously thinking about it for years. What would you want our listeners to go away and, and think about when it comes to considering the motivations and the uh, sort of the internal thoughts of the Chinese leader? So China, in some ways, doesn't have all that much experience or rather doesn't have a lot of experience to go on. Maybe that's a better way to think about it. You know, there's... A lot of concern about the rise of China, uh, about the impact that China can have. But to a certain extent, it's not a very experienced actor on the world stage. Not quite yet. Not, not in the way that you would expect a superpower to be. Because they are still a rising superpower in many ways. And they want the world to take them seriously, but they're not quite there yet. They are 
kind of now sitting at the adults table, but not always able to give that last, you know, like the sort of last mile, you know, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this, but they in so many ways lack that kind of maturity. And so they're trying to figure out how to position themselves, what to do, what to say, who to talk to. You know, one of the, I think one of the things that we forget on Ukraine when it comes to China and how China's responded is that Beijing is really stuck. Xi Jinping can't say, Putin, you're not my friend anymore. That would be embarrassing too, because he's made all this effort to cozy up to Russia. But also at the same time, could China really do anything to support and help Ukraine? I'm not sure that Beijing necessarily knows how to do that because it doesn't have necessarily the experience of doing something like that. They don't want to get involved in anything unless they know for sure that they can win, that they can succeed and that it's beneficial to themselves. And it's impossible to guarantee anything like that when you're talking about Ukraine right now. Hi, Sophia. Um, really interesting hearing your insights on this. I, I just wanted to, I know it's not strictly a Ukraine question, but I just wanted to hear your take on those extraordinary scenes last weekend at the Congress where we saw um, Xi's predecessor effectively kicked out of the Congress in, in front of an international audience and, of course, the, the audience of the Congress itself. What was your interpretation of that? And and what do you think is its significance? What message is, is Xi trying to send? The images that we saw of his predecessor, Hu Jintao, being ejected from the stage, this was so representative of exactly what was happening. After 10 years, Xi Jinping has dispensed with so many norms and he's going to stay in power, maybe until he dies. We are in a completely unprecedented situation. China hasn't seen this in decades. We're really headed for a pretty dark place. And with who physically being removed, literally the old guard was being ushered out by the new guard. And I think that's why it's stuck in people's heads. It was so emblematic of what was happening in that moment. And it really is a sign that what Xi Jinping has done over these last 10 years isn't going to change. He's given no indication that any of his policies are going to relax, or that he's going to change his mind on anything, because that means that he maybe made a mistake. That's not something strongmen dictators like to do, right? To admit that they maybe stepped the wrong direction for a second. So, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more of the same from Xi, and, and that's a lot more tightening, a lot more of this belligerence and aggressiveness about how his regime is really the best. I think that's the direction we're headed in. And I think that's why that particular moment with his predecessor, who was so, so interesting. You know China better than anyone else at The Telegraph. What would be, do you think, the biggest takeaway that you would say on modern China, that if you were in a room with, with Western leaders and lecturing them, that there is a misconception or, or a big lesson that needs to be understood about China that perhaps the West hasn't quite got a handle on at the moment? Hmm. So I think there are a lot of things I would say. <laughs> I think that the West needs to always remember to, to not look at China through its own frame of reference. China is completely different from anything we've ever seen. China has done things that the world never thought possible. It is now the world's second largest economy. It's the world's most populous country. It is very much a dictatorship, very much an authoritarian regime, but it has capitalist tendencies. I mean, this was a mix that nobody saw coming. Okay, maybe I won't say nobody. I'm sure some people were <laughs> ahead of their time in predicting that. But for the most part, this was something that much of the world couldn't have imagined. That's not going to go away. China 
has always been in many ways very, very different from the West. And yeah, of course, there was a thinking that maybe it would become a little bit more open and politically more democratic. That never happened. Given everything you've said, let's bring it back to Ukraine. Do you see the Chinese response to the invasion uh, and its dealings with Ukraine and Russia? Do you, do, you, do you feel that that might change, that they might change their approach in the months or the years ahead? Or as you've suggested, and I, and I wonder whether this will be your answer, that actually what they really want to do is not is do, do as much as possible not to get involved. For the medium term, so the next couple of months, the next year or so, uh, I imagine that Beijing wants to continue to be very careful. It doesn't want to be impacted by sanctions. So it can't necessarily provide very material vocal support for Russia in that sense. Um, and it's got a real issue. You know, China is worried like other nations, about the issue of nuclear weapons, what happens at that at that point. I mean, we have some sense that China's worried about this because uh, fairly recently it nominated an ambassador to the EU, and he's a veteran official who has worked on non-proliferation and nuclear war prevention. So that was a job that was empty for almost a year. So there's some sense that China's thinking about this and what this means for Europe and for itself. But its, its biggest red line still is if Russia completely falls apart. They share a long border. So if Russia completely crumbles, that's massively destabilizing. And if Russia crumbles, that means maybe regimes like China's and Russia's aren't actually going to be on the up and up. So that would completely uh, refute what, what Xi Jinping's been all about all this time. But I do think uh, from the kind of chatter about who might be in his uh, who might be among his foreign policy advisors going ahead. We don't know for sure yet, but there are some names that have been thrown out. There's some speculation out there. One of them is that the current ambassador to the U.S., uh, Qinggong, may become the next foreign minister. So that indicates possibly that China will be looking more toward the U.S., focusing on its relationship with the U.S., in which case it would give it a natural way to pivot a little bit away from Russia at the moment. I mean, this is really pure speculation. I should be very clear. It's a very opaque black box when we're talking about Chinese elite politics. And so you have to kind of grasp at straws. A lot of China watchers, we always say, reading the tea leaves. And that's that's all we can do at this point, because China has become even less transparent under Xi. Very quickly, Natalia Vasilyeva, you've been listening to all of this. I mean, you know, thank you so much, Sophia, for taking us through how Chinese leaders are thinking uh, and and how it might move in the future. Natalia, what's the current Russian view on China and and, their, and its friendship and its relations? When Putin went ahead with the invasion, in the even in the early, you know, in the late stages of planning, there was an understanding that China would be there to support him in uh, helping Russia overcome the effect of sanctions. I'm not even talking about supplying weapons, but um, uh, supplying all con- kinds of uh, things that the West is now is refusing to send to Ukraine. But what we have seen in recent months, we have seen a China uh, which um, has tried to even sound neutral. I mean, Sophia made it clear that obviously state Chinese TV pretty much toes the Russian line, but uh, this is just this is just all rhetoric. We haven't seen it on the ground in Russia. What we saw. Um, on the ground is Chinese companies and Chinese banks uh, um, running away from the country just as fast as everyone else. Huawei, the uh, key um, Chinese um, technology company, uh, shut down its office just like Apple and everyone else. Uh, Chinese banks uh, stopped working with Russian banks. 
in in many cases, Chinese companies have been even more careful and more wary of dealing with the Russians than um, companies from Turkey or from India. And um, um, it, it was very clear um, last time that when uh, we saw she uh, and Putin uh, meeting in, in Samarkand in, in um, I think it was late September or early October, we saw very clearly that Putin was disappointed that he was not uh, getting quite the support that he had obviously counted on. Thank you very much for that, Natalia. Um, Sophia, one last thing. Um, we've mentioned this podcast you've been working on, the work you've been doing. Would you just like to tell our listeners um, what it is, what you've been doing and where they can find it? Yes, it's called How to Become a Dictator. It's a four-part series diving into the rise of Xi over the last 10 years and how the country has changed under him. And so we take you through to a bunch of different countries in the world, also, of course, China, and explore what that means and what that means for the world. And you can find that on all your favorite podcast apps. You can find it on the Telegraph website. And we've got plenty of stories, uh, coverage linked to the podcast that you can also find online. So please click and listen away. Thank you, Sophia. Um I think we're starting to run out of time today. So can I just ask all of you, just for your final thoughts, what should what, what, are you, what will you be looking at and thinking of in the next few days, the days to come? What should our listeners uh, be concentrating on? Francis Sternley, would you like to go first? Sure, thanks, David. I think just because we've been talking about China today, just one final thought on that, which is a much more thinking long term in, in, in the future, really, which is I think that whether China likes it or not, the world, Western world, has seen... China's ambiguity on this fundamental point of of, of, of sovereignty of of, a, of an independent nation in Europe, and and as a consequence has reacted accordingly. However much China may tr- may try and toe a middle line, I think a, a lot of Western politicians' eyes have been opened as a consequence of what's happened in Ukraine, and I think. There's already evidence of a of a much more of a hawkish foreign policy as a response to that taking place. If one looks at, at Britain, of course, we've spoken at length this week already about uh, Rishi Sunak. Now, interestingly, Rishi Sunak has been uh, very, very strong on uh, on the issue of China in in recent years. Um, he's he's talked about the threat of China and how it's operated in a in a in a hostile manner. And indeed, there is a lot of speculation that he will seek to ban the Confucius Institutes, which are Chinese um, research institutes that are attached to numerous universities in the UK, uh, partly funded by Chinese donors and by, I think, the Chinese government itself, um, and that he wants to actually seek to ban those and and to have them withdrawn from the UK because of fears that they are actually, uh, in a sense, stealing Western um, intelligence, Western knowledge, and and then utilising it themselves back home. So I just wanted to draw attention to that, that, that whilst China is trying to operate in this in this space of of not being too controversial, not upsetting the Russians too much, not upsetting the West too much, ultimately I think it's too late for that. I think a lot of Western eyes have already been sharpened very much to, to China's autocratic nature and, and its ambitions on Taiwan and, and are responding accordingly. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Natalia, can I come to you? I, we we realise that um, Russian President Vladimir Putin is due to give his annual speech very shortly. Um, do we have any sense of what he might say, or is that are we all in the dark on that? If this is a scheduled speech. This is not something that um, we saw a month ago when Putin just came out of the blue and said, um, "Well, um, 
you know, there, there's an ex- uh, extraordinary, there's um, an unscheduled address, and this is when he announced mobilization. Um, he's scheduled to speak at a discussion club that in previous years would bring together top uh, Kremlin and Russia experts. This year, obviously, the panel is not going to be as illustrious as most of Russian experts um, are either refusing to go to Russia or they are explicitly barred. Some of them have been barred from visiting Russia at all. Um, uh, obviously, we'll give Putin another chance to speak about, uh, you know, what's 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 going to happen in, in Ukraine, especially uh, southern Ukraine, because what we saw in recent days is uh, um, very methodic uh, um, work uh, by the occupation administration in Kherson of trying to get uh, residents to evacuate the administration, and even uh, they were they even started evacuating monuments. Thanks, Natalia. Sophia Yen, would you like the very final words? Okay, this is a big responsibility. <laughs> um, I want to continue on a bit on what Francis was talking about with the ambiguity, ambiguity that China has exploited on the issue of Ukraine. This is a great example of what I was saying before of not using existing frames of reference to look at what's happening with China. If you think back uh, now a few months ago, um, wait, last month, <laughs> time that blurs together when you think about China. But when she and Putin met in Samarkand, there was a lot of anticipation about whether or not she would bring up the issue of Ukraine. That's something that's coming from a Western frame of reference. Why would a head of state meet a head of state perpetrating war and not bring up that issue? From China's perspective, of course it wasn't going to do that because what would she possibly gain from that that was just weeks before he was going to take on his historic third term he needed to maintain the status quo not to rock the boat and the big question at the end of the day for the communist party is what's the goal to accomplish and will it bring china any benefit from china's perspective on that issue with that meeting it probably didn't quite know what to aim for and thus there would be no positive result for china so i think that's a a point that i really want to hammer home the world cannot look at China the way it's used to looking at other countries because everything that China is doing is so unique and it's just charting new territory. Thank you, Sophia. Thank you, Francis. And thank you, Natalia. Just to, just to add to that, Sophia, I think that's your, your point about these frames of references and, and trying, to, trying to get into the head of, you know, see the world through Chinese eyes, see the world through Russian eyes, Ukrainian eyes. Uh, it, it, it's so important for us to do, I think. And I think that's what we're trying to do almost every day. You know, we'd have different guests, different journalists on to try and give like a sort of kaleidoscope, the best, the broadest um, understanding of this. So the, the more, the better we understand how Putin or how she approaches these issues, the better we can sort of try and read what's happening and, and better explain what, what we think is happening. Um, so thank you for saying that. That was, I thought that was really interesting and it's really stuck with me. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. 
As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Madeline Drury and on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.